seat and get out your scripture. I hope you have brought God's word with you. Open it up. We're going to be in James 5 at the very, very end of the chapter. I want to tell you a little story that um, it's really just relating something that happened years ago in, in my own life. It doesn't even really fall into the story category. But it really illustrates, I think, quite powerfully what we just sang. I have a friend. His name is Bill. That is his real name, Bill. And uh, Bill and I, when we met each other, we just really hit it off. I, I don't know why. Uh, we didn't have a lot of common interests um, as far as life directions, direction is concerned. But we just really, our hearts went knit together. He loved the Lord. I loved the Lord. And so we spent time, our family spent time together. Um, Michelle watched his little boy as he and his wife were off working. I mean, there, were, there was just a lot of really close ties. And over the, a period of, of months, that, that knitting together just became a very, very deep friendship. And Bill became more than just a friend to me. He really became a brother. And so when I, I started to find out about Bill's accomplishments, um, I just grew more and more and more just enthralled with who he was. Found out that he was an Emmy Awards winning sportscaster in a prior life. And I wasn't surprised because Bill had that voice. You know, it's just the voice that, you know, you meet people like that. You know that they're on television or radio. And he just had that voice. And he was so good at speaking. And so I was like, wow. And so, you know, I know an Emmy Award winning sportscaster. And and uh, he'd given up that career to, to go on to do something else. And he had his own business. He was incredibly successful, six-digit earner. And this is in the 90s when six digits were actually a lot of money. There's still a lot of money now, but it was even more money then. And, and he's very, very successful. And I, I got to go with him. I spent the whole day with him. I showed up early in the morning, and he took me out, and I did his job for a whole day with him. And it was just such a joy to get to hang out with him and find out what he was doing. I was always interested in everything. And I began to notice things um, about Bill, because we were connected, that were disquieting. And so I started asking Bill, Bill, what's going on with this? And, you know, he'd, he'd make up this excuse, or he'd say this, or, you know, he was always really good at deflecting. You ever have one of those people that you can ask a very direct question, and they give you a direct answer, but you know they're not answering the question that you asked. They're answering some other thing that they want to talk about. And Bill was that way. And so he would, he would give me these diversions, really. And so I would keep on challenging. I mean, we're, we're tight, you know. And it's like, what's going on, man? What's going on? And then those things became more and more and more disturbing till finally got to the point where I just said, Bill, he just gave me one of those answers again. I said, you have not answered my question. What is going on? And so he went from, you know, being normal, affable Bill, you know, the guy that I love to be around and hearts knit and being kind of snot. And so he, he got snotty with me. He's like, hey, it's none of your business, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's just going on. And, and it's like, okay, I'm going to back off just a little bit, but I'm going to let you know. I mean, we're, we're bros, and I'm not going to let this. And it's like, well, just, you know, keep it to yourself. And it kept on happening, kept on happening. And so I kept on pressing and pressing and pressing. And it went from just, you know, the kind of concern that you have for a friend you maybe think is making bad choices to uh, really a spiritual thing to where I began to see and notice things were outside of God's will. So it went from just kind of a brother encouraging a brother to say, hey, you know, I'm seeing this, it's concerning, to 
you're now doing things that the scripture is really very, very clear you shouldn't be doing. Now, I only knew the half of it. And so he kept on becoming more and more angry, and our relationship got more and more tense, I guess you could say. And there started to be some distance in between us that we didn't have before. And I was really feeling that just really that depth of, of disappointment that you have when you know that you're losing a friend. But I loved him enough that I wasn't going to back off. Those things kept on happening. And so we went from really, really close to me really becoming kind of a spiritual mentor slash accountability partner rather than just a brother that's in the trenches together. And, and he was okay because of things that were going on in his life. With that change, I wasn't because I missed the brotherhood part of it. And so I started getting these, these phone calls when Bill was in, in pretty big trouble. And Bill was, Bill was fantastic at covering up what he was doing. And just to make an extraordinary long story, I mean, this took months and months and months, a little bit shorter. Bill was an incredible gambler. Uh, he could go into one of the casinos that is in this area uh, with a hundred dollars and come out with ten thousand consistently i mean he was that good uh, i think his biggest one day take was forty thousand dollars just amazing he just whatever it was that that he had he had it in abundance and he would win 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 and so he would go down to the casino and he would go in with his hundred or five hundred or a thousand or ten thousand dollars and come out with a ton of money every time bill also had no physiology for uh, consuming alcohol at all so the very first sip of any alcoholic beverage for my friend bill he was drunk uh, his physiology did, didn't process alcohol some people are like that and so it was an immediate thing and of course the casinos do not like to lose but they do like to give out free alcohol especially to people who are winning and so my friend who i didn't know at this time was doing this uh, was going to the casinos and they found out that when he was intoxicated which was at the very first drink his ability to go out with tens of thousands of dollars sometimes became the opposite side so he would lose tens of thousands of dollars so he entered into this doom loop to where he knew he was good at it and he, that he could make a lot of money but he couldn't resist the alcohol which made him bad at it which lost him a lot of money and so that became his life and everything around that environment became his life came to the point to where he started embezzling from his own company, which in case you don't know, is illegal. Even though you own the company, you can't take funds that belong to the company. It's illegal. And that embezzlement went from just taking money from his company to taking money from the United States government, which also is illegal. It's called taxes, and they get really annoyed when they don't get them. And so there was lots of other things that, that began to, to happen, and and uh, I remember Bill called me one time and he said, I, I need you to come pick me up. I, I've got to go sell some stuff. And I said, sure, no problem. I mean, we're, we're bros. You know, it's like, yeah. 
So I pick him up and I said, what are we, what are we selling? You know, I'm thinking, you know, a truck or something like that. I don't know. And so he had a long list of like household items that he's selling. I was like, Bill, why are you selling this stuff? And he says, because if I don't show up with $6,000 by such and such a time, there's some guys that are going to break my legs. I said, you're kidding me. He said, I'm not kidding you. He said, you, I know you've heard about that on the movies and the shows and stuff, but this is what I'm involved in, and they will break my legs if I don't show up with this money. So we hit several pawn shops, and he was able to scrape up the six grand that he needed to keep his legs, and so he paid him and kept his legs. The calls that I got from Bill started becoming less and less frequent, and when I went talk to Bill. Let's say, hey, Bill, you're, you're far from the Lord. You're, you're, you're messing up your life. This is not going to end well. Well, um, he did mess up his life. I remember the last time I talked to Bill, you know, we were talking on the phone. I could tell he was in his, in his, in his car, his favorite car. He, he loved that car. And the, the telephone conversation ended abruptly. And I, I didn't know what had gone on, if he hit a bad cell, whatever. And later on, he told me that the conversation ended with him sticking his arm out of the, his driver's side window while I was talking to him on the phone on I-71 going somewhere between 70 and 80 miles an hour and dropping that phone on the ground. You know, that's what he, he said, that's what I thought of you, and that's what I thought of me. I was just done, and I watched your conversation break into pieces along I-71. It's like, wow, glad he didn't know that. I just thought you hit a, hit a dead spot. I remember one day... I was in a group, and, and I prayed for Bill, and I prayed for Bill, and I prayed for Bill, and I was, I was just bummed. You know, it's like, Lord, where are you? I mean, I'm, I'm here, I'm challenging him, I'm praying for him, I'm doing everything the Bible says supposed to be doing, and I'm watching him in this spiral downward. And I'd known that he'd recently uh, lost his, his home, which was his family's, like, ancestral home. So he, he was the last holdout in the family, the last boy in this Land had been passed from generation to generation. He had the last section of that, and it was being foreclosed on. His wife had had enough. She had left him. They had filed for divorce. I mean, he was in a terrible, terrible place. He was doing this alcohol, gambling, other stuff that I'm just not going to fill you in on, but if you can imagine how terrible it could be, it was that terrible. It's just going on and on and on. I just was overwhelmed with grief for Bill. And I just went and found a quiet spot and just sobbed for him and didn't hear anything. Days went into weeks. Weeks turned into months. No bill. Had no idea where he was. Obviously, his phone didn't work because it was in pieces on I-71. They have no idea. So there was one day, a couple months after, it would probably been six or seven weeks since I had any communication with Bill or I had even heard of where he might have been. And God, one night, it was in October, uh, very, very beginning of October, he said, you need to go find Bill. I'm like, Lord, you're going to have to give me some sort of spiritual GPS because I have no clue where he's at. None. And I won't even know where to start. And so God says, you need to find Bill. So, okay. So I got in my car, told Michelle what was going on, and she was very gracious. It's like, okay, this is just another one of Robert's crazy things that he's doing. So I'm driving around trying to find Bill. I'm going to all the places that I think that Bill might be at. Can't find him. 
I'm calling people. God's really put on my heart. I got to find Bill. Have you seen him? Have you heard from him? Nobody that I knew that I could call. No, they hadn't seen him either. And so I went as long as I could go, and I was exhausted. And so I went home figuring, okay, you know, that must have been one of those things that I thought God was talking to me, but that wasn't the case at all. So I went home, went to sleep, woke up early the next morning. Same thing, you got to go find Bill. Like, Lord, where am I going to go look for Bill? And so it was at that point that that spiritual GPS finally kicked in. God said, go to this place. And so I went to that place. And I was surprised that I hadn't looked at that place the night before because it kind of made some sense to go there. But I hadn't. And so I went to that place. I looked around, no bill. Like, okay, I'm obviously not hearing the Lord very well. So I'm getting ready to go back in my car, and I see Bill stumbling out of the woods. Uh, Bill had attempted suicide that night before by asphyxiation. And what, uh, what he'd done is he had uh, poisoned himself with carbon monoxide and hadn't accomplished the task of ending his life. He just accomplished the task of being, having carbon monoxide sickness. So he was not able to speak coherently couldn't stand properly. It looked as if he were terribly, terribly intoxicated, but that wasn't the case for once. He was just full of carbon monoxide. So I was really frightened, especially because I'd had that, um, just that urge to go find him. And so I wasn't even going to call 911. I shoved him into the back of my car as he's babbling incoherently. You know, it, it, it was a mess. He was a mess. And booked it down uh, the highway to the hospital. And so get him to the hospital, run in, tell him what's gone on. They drag him out. They put him in the hospital. They, they admit him and go through the process of detoxing him from carbon monoxide. I remember uh, two things at the hospital happening. One is the uh, hospital staff at the emergency room treated him incredibly poorly. Uh, they knew that he was a suicide attempt, and they knew his age. It gets into there, and they just really wore him out, and uh, they 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 treated him horribly, and it really was disturbing to me. The other thing that happened is I remember leaning over his bed and whispering into his ear when they finally got him to the point of just being able to not be moving and doing all the things that comes with the poisoning that he had done to himself. And asking him this question, are you ready to surrender yet? Having no idea what was going to happen. He was in the hospital for a couple days, and he did survive the, the outcome. But coming out of the hospital, he had no place to go. And so I um, went and got him, and we had a conversation, and I took him to a homeless shelter. I took my buddy, my brother, uh, Emmy-winning sportscaster, six-digit earner, successful entrepreneur to a homeless shelter and dropped him off with people that did not look like him, did not have the education he had, did not have all the, the resources that had available to him because that's the only place he could go. And so he went into the detox center. Um, it was a multi-stage prop shelter, went in the detox center, he endured two weeks of 
detox with people that were detoxing from alcohol, detoxing from all sorts of different drugs. And then he moved into the second stage and he worked the program all the way through. I would stay in touch with Bill as he went along the process, encouraging those kinds of things. And about three, four months along the way, Bill's starting to get his head screwed back on straight. He's rediscovered his relationship with the Lord. He's beginning to feed from God's word. And uh, he says this thing to me that I've never forgot. He said, he said Robert, I want you to know that you've lived something out for me. And I said, what's that? You know, thinking, you know, brotherhood, you know, something, you know. He says, he says no, at the end of James, it says that if somebody wanders from the truth, and somebody goes out and turns them back, that there's a great gift in that, and that, that um, a multitude of sin is covered. He said, I want you to know that you're that person for me. Now, I'd studied God's word far longer than Bill had. I knew God's word far better than Bill did, and it never crossed my mind that I was that person for him. And so I actually went, I remember thinking, I don't remember that at all. I actually went and got my Bible, read the end of James. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's what he says. And now I'm embarrassed because, you know, I'm supposed to be a spiritual mentor and he knows portions of the scripture a lot better than what I did and is able to make this connection. And so then I said, well, what kind of other relationships do I have? And what kind of relationships do other people have with me to keep this dynamic very much the same? And so today, I want to share with you about that dynamic, not from some disconnected spiritual teaching kind of a thing, but having had the privilege of having one person, and one person is the only person that's ever said that to me, one person say, do you know what? You are that person for me. And I wanted to connect it to the story, not to make you think that I'm a better person than what I am, because I hope that you don't. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, but to help to illustrate just the power of God's word when we allow it to be applied to our lives. Sometimes we can even be doing the things that God says we're supposed to be doing without recognizing, connecting to that specific thing. I did not know. I was not looking into James and saying, all right, this is what I'm going to do with Bill. I just love Bill. Bill's my buddy. Bill is my friend. Bill is my brother. And I'd want to do everything I could to help him, even as I watched him tear his life apart brick by brick, piece by piece, just devastated to the point of having to be by himself at a homeless shelter for a year, a year it took him to finally get things back together. And which, by the way, afterwards he was convicted as a felon because he stole from the United States government, you know, da-da-da-da-da. You know, his life was very, very complicated. And so, as we're working through the 40 days of the Word, you know, it's really easy to not um, connect to things that, that God is wanting to tell us and to kind of rush through the, the process and to not listen for the Holy Spirit. But I, I really want to encourage you. One of the things that Rick Warren has said over and over again is how important it is to apply God's word. It's not enough to understand it. It's not enough to regurgitate it. You've got to be able to apply it. And so I'm going to share with you my paraphrase. This week was about paraphrasing. I'm going to share with you my paraphrase of this verse, sex and verses at the end of James. And I just want to encourage you 
to allow God's word to be more than just words on a page, uh, religious things that we can say to each other, and allow it to work beyond that to being who you are. And so that even though you may not make the connection, which I did not make the connection, I didn't. I, and, and even after he said it, I was, I was really dubious about it, that God's word is working through you. If we can do that, then we can begin to really see the process of what I believe this God wants to do in this people, in this place at Highland Hills. And that is to genuinely love each other the way that Jesus loves us. That's hard because our human person doesn't want to do that. Second thing is that we receive healing because we're repenting. It's always easier to see what somebody else needs to repent of or something else somebody needs to confess than it is to see what we need to do. And oftentimes we don't receive healing from the Lord because we will not allow him to address our sickness. We want him to address somebody else's sickness. And so we're, we're not healed. We, we stay sick. Spiritually, we stay, stay sick. Emotionally, we stay sick. Mentally, we stay sick physically because we refuse God's healing because we want him to work on somebody else rather than us. And the third thing that we absolutely have to do as God's people in this place is join Jesus on his mission. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to serve, not to be served. These are things that we know that Jesus said of himself and that he tells his disciples they must also do. Make disciples, not converts, make disciples. And when we're living out these principles in our lives and we're sharing Jesus with the people that we work with, with the people that we play with, with the people that we live alongside of, with our relatives, we are going to see him do what only he can do, change their hearts and to grow his kingdom because it's his passion. That's what the cross is all about. So James, the fifth chapter, at the very, very end of James's letter to the church James says these, these words, My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings that sinner back will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. I'm going to read it one more time. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings that sinner back will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Now, if you, I didn't bore you with my story, something that happened in my life, I think that you can see the points that Bill was making that I didn't know. But I, I want to give you a little bit more because I really believe in the power of context. And James is, is, is very shotgunny in, in, the, in its teaching. It's a very difficult book to outline, but there is a thread, there is a theme, and I'm not going to go into all that, but I, I want to give you some context for where, why he ends. This is a weird way to end a letter. You know, it's not like, hey, I love you, looking forward to seeing you come soon. We see that a lot in Paul's letters and when in James' letter, he's like, okay, if any of you really stink at your spiritual walk so much so that somebody has to go get you to save you from killing yourself, then there's that rescue that's going to happen in a multitude of sins. That's not a nice way to end the letter. Can we all agree about that? Okay. 
So how did he get here? In chapter 5, if you just kind of flip back, if you got your Bibles open, uh, he, he begins by warning folks who are privileged, who are wealthy. And he says, listen, you need to make sure that you do not use the resources that you have to tilt the balance in your favor, which is natural, isn't it? If you've got more weight because you've got pockets full of gold, it's kind of natural to tilt things the way that you want them to be tilted. He says, all you'll do by doing that is end up condemning yourself. And then he goes right from that to instructing God's people to be patient while they wait for our Lord's return. He had no idea that we would still be waiting for Jesus' return. I mean, it's been a couple thousand years. We're still waiting for Jesus to establish the fullness of his work in the universe. Still waiting. And he says, listen, waiting is part of our experience. So don't get wore out waiting because there's joy in seeing things that take time come to fruition. He uses a farming illustration. He says this in verse 9. Don't grumble about each other or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. That's a rough one, isn't it? We like to skip that one because we like to grumble about each other. It doesn't matter who we are. If we're parents, we like to grumble about our kids. You know, I tell them it's time is never do this and you know if if we're married then we grumble about our spouse you know talking to me that way i can't believe this kind of thing uh if we're working we grumble about our boss if my boss had half a brain you know, da, 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 da. you know if we're on a sports team we grumble about our teammates if so-and-so had been in this particular spot then we went lost the game you know we we're good at grumbling right all right i'm good at grumbling you all better than me all right, thank you. It's uncomfortable. But what James is trying to help us to remember is that Jesus says, don't judge others or you will be judged by the same measure that you judge others. That's the measure you'll be judged by. Now, he's not talking about saying, hey, this is wrong, which I did with Bill. What he was doing was wrong. It went from being concerning to being wrong. And I flat out told Bill, in fact, when I got dropped on the 71, I was letting Bill know, Bill, you are outside of the will of God. You are sinning and it is destroying your life. And it was that blunt. And then I hit the asphalt. Okay? So, uh, there's been this lie that Satan has been able to, to convince many religious people about that, that you know, what... Christians really need to be doing is just kind of floating along, not having any sort of opinions about anything, because that'll be judging. I'm sorry, if God said it's wrong, it's wrong, period. You don't need to judge. It's wrong. Okay? It's wrong. Period. Now, what he said is not good, and it is very damaging, is when God's law is added to by my law. Okay? I don't like the way you're looking at me. It's not in the Bible. The way that my wife is looking at me is not in the Bible. But it annoys me. And so I tell her, I don't like the way you're looking at me. And she tells me back, I don't like the way you're looking at me. And now we're both grumbling at each other because of something on our face. We can easily get wiped off. 
And then that becomes an opportunity for more grumbling and more grumbling and judging and all sorts of things that go on. This is what Jesus said that we're not supposed to do because by the measure that we judge, I know what you're thinking because I see it on your face. You ever said that to somebody? You ever had that said to me? You? And ever had somebody that was wrong? I was just kind of having a little, little stomach thing right there. Wasn't thinking thing outside of, I just puked in my mouth. You know, that was it. And somebody's like, just telling you about all the stuff that you were thinking. It's like, I wasn't thinking a thing of that. He says, don't do that. Then he goes on, and then he talks about suffering and talks about patience. And, he, and the, then he says, listen, what you say needs to be worthy, not because you promise, but because you do it which is a theme that gets right back to the very beginning. Don't be hearers of the word, but be doers about faith not being something that we believe, but something that we actually do. And I'm going to get back to that later on. And then he talks about prayer and about many of the things that we endure as human beings are a result of our own sin. And if we confess our sin to each other and we allow other people to be accountable to us and that we can be accountable to them then as they pray that God removes sickness he removes disease he frees us from things like alcoholism and gambling addiction and all sorts of things that you actually do that kind of a thing and that gets us back to where we're at my dear brothers and sisters if somebody among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back you can be sure that whoever brings that sinner back will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins so here's, here's my paraphrase, and I, I want to share it with you, and I don't want to belabor it too long, but I, want, I, I think this is important. God's designed us to be family, my dear brothers and sisters. And so if I was going to paraphrase that first phrase in there, he's like, hey, family, because brothers and sisters are what? Family. Very good. Thank you. Uh, Y'all thought I was going to give you the Sunday off and not make you talk back to me. So it's family. He said, hey, family, God has connected us by his Holy Spirit to people that we have nothing in common with. God has connected us by his Holy Spirit to people that we would not connect with in any other way. That's part of the magnificence of grace is that we're connected to people that we wouldn't connect to. And that when we're living out Christ's command to love each other the way that he loves us, we will do that and we will do it with joy. I had a friend, the very first time I met this friend, a very, very uh, well-connected friend, very well-resourced friend, rich. And the very first time I met him, they were hanging out with somebody that was not well-educated, absolutely impoverished as a result of very poor choice-making, and hanging out at this place. I remember thinking, this is such a huge paradox. And so I looked at my friend to think, you know, if they were doing the nice thing, you know, sometimes people that are very wealthy, you know, feel like they need to give back, you know, this kind of thing. And so I was, I was skeptical. I'm not going to lie, I was skeptical. See, so, but as I watched them interact with this family, I just saw the love of Christ just over and over. And they were respectful, even though it was obvious that the way we're in, they were in this situation because of really dumb choices. And he just graced them and loved them and, and went out of the way to be Christ in their lives. And I was like, wow, this is what I'm seeing. And this is what should be in God's family. 
Because when we really love each other, whether it be our physical brother or physical sister or somebody that God's just knit our hearts together, when we really love each other, we're going to be family in the best sense. I know some of you got some really messed up families. I understand that. I came from one of those really messed up families. My parents, my brothers and sisters and I get great, but you go out just one little step from there and, oh man, you think my story about Bill was crazy. I could, I could top that one, I'm telling you. Just all sorts of crazy stuff. You know, like I have cousins named the exact same name, okay? So I'll just, I'll just say Sam Smith. Boys, Sam Smith, they're my cousins because one of my uncles had sons from different women and liked the name so much, he would name his sons the same name from different girls. That's messed up, right? Made that family reunion a little awkward, I'm just telling you. Okay, so now, now you know I'm just not making it up. That was just a, that was the tip of the iceberg, okay? So, but in the best sense of family, in the most powerful sense of family, God has designed us to interact with each other that way. And so the best families are patient with each other. The best families are sacrificial with each other. The best families will confront each other. Sometimes it's confrontation because somebody is really wrong. Sometimes it's confrontation just because they're doing something not right. You, have you ever taught your kid how to tie their shoes? That's a process, isn't it? Because when they tie the shoes, they don't always get it right. And when shoes are not tied right, then what happens? A big what? Knot. And who do they come to to get the knot done? Right, okay, you're with me. So family, you know, you, it doesn't always have to be a matter of sin. Family will confront and say, listen, you're not doing that right. And if you don't stop doing it that way, you're going to be coming to me with this knot that's going to take me 25 minutes to get undone while you wait there and bother me about it, right? So family does that. Second phrase, if someone among you wanders away from the truth, If someone among you wanders away from the truth, what James is telling his, his fellow brothers and sisters is that we get distracted, don't we? Jesus says, if anyone wants to be a follower of mine, must deny himself, take up his cross, and does anybody know the rest of what Jesus said? Follow me? You all know! That's awesome! Guess what? Have you ever had kids like at the zoo or at a museum or at a park, or any place to where you said, okay, follow me. You ever done this? Okay, if you haven't, it's an experience. Because there's always one or two or ten, depending on how big the group is, they'll get distracted along the way. They'll see something that they really are interested in. They'll get in a little squabble with each other and lose track of the rest of the group. Have you seen this? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? They lose their way. It isn't that necessarily they determine, although there are those that actually is like, I'm just waiting for the very first opportunity to, I'm off. They're just not paying attention. And so they end up wandering away. I remember the first time, I remember very, very clearly, the first time my dad ever told me that my mom was going to kill him. I was a little guy, 
like little, little guy. And my dad had taken myself and my two younger brothers to the county fair. Just him, myself, my two little brothers. My sister was just a baby baby. And so mom and little sister stayed home. Mom doesn't like crowds anyway, so dad wanted to go this. So we're going around. And uh, we're seeing stuff. And then my dad turns around to me and says, where's your brother? And I said, he's right there. He said, no, the other brother. Panic. Uh, huge amount of people. And so dad is going, he's retracing our steps where, where we've been. And the longer he retraces and he's getting people to help uh, to find now. My youngest brother um, <laughs> was a runner. My earliest remembrance of him was uh, he got outside of our apartment and he was headed across the parking lot in his diaper, only crawling. Where he was going, I have no idea. So I said, hey, mom, the littlest one is out there. And she panics. You know, how did he get out there? I don't know. Maybe I turned up the door. I have no idea. But there he is. You know, and he was, he was buzzing on someplace or another. And so that we lost the littlest one was not a great surprise but I just remember my dad saying over and over again your mom is going to kill me your mom is going to kill me your mom is going to kill me great story is uh, he was found and he was actually sitting inside a shelf so we'd actually been by him several times but he had crawled up on into the shelf of displays because he got interested in something that was on the other side and so it looked like a good place to stop and sit so there he went nobody could find him that happens in our family, right? It happened in my family. Maybe you've never lost a kid, but we did. It happens in the family of God. They get distracted. They're maybe poking each other. Maybe they're finding something else that they think is more interesting for a while. And they get lost. So, hey family, if someone in you gets lost wanders away, forgets what's really true, and is brought back. I think the third thing that I want to really point out is the power of restoration. Now, my dad loves us all, but there was a special joy when he found my youngest brother that moment because he was restored not to relationship. He was restored not to health. He was just restored to he was found again. And his imminent death at the hands of my mom was no longer a certainty, right? And so there was this, this, this hey, you're back. And sometimes it's just to go get somebody and say, hey, listen, what you doing? Well, I'm looking at this. Well, the rest of the family's like over here. So how about you get up out of there and let's go over here? Because if you don't, mom's going to kill dad, right? And so there's this ability that we've been given by the power of the Holy Spirit to actually do this in reality in our relationships with each other. If we'll choose to do that, what we tend to do is like, well, you need to get your stuff together and I'm leaving you. I've seen that. I used to work at a grocery store. I saw that a hundred times if I saw it once or twice. Well, how do we wonder so well how do we 
have to be brought back? Well, because there's some reasons here that I think we see earlier in the passage and I wanted to share with you is because we are both self-willed and self-destructive. When we grumble against each other, it makes us emotionally feel better for a moment, but what it does is damage our relationship with each other, doesn't it? Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, you know what, you really complained about me, and I'm so glad you did. You, you tore me down in the, amongst my friends you know, because I'd done something that annoyed you, and I just really thank you so much. That was, that was awesome. Probably not. But we do it, don't we? We do it because we're so wrapped up in the what we want and how we want it. We do it because we're able to self-destruct. The hardest thing with that whole thing that went on with Bill is watching him self-destruct, watching him lose his business, watching him lose his family, watching him lose his home. They've been passed down from generation to generation, and he was absolutely determined not to stop going the way he was going. And there was nobody from the outside that was pushing him that way. He didn't have any of those friends. He was flying solo straight into the Hoover Dam as fast as he possibly could. But God's placed us in a relationship with each other so that we can bring somebody back by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that we can see him saved from death. In Bill's case, it was a literal saving from death. He poisoned himself intentionally to end his life. But his life was restored. Not as he got out of the hospital, but as he spent the next 12 to 15 months working out all of those addictions and rediscovering what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And there was a forgiveness of many sins. Many sins. Sins I couldn't even begin to catalog. And not from me. I've been hurt by Bill, disappointed in Bill, but Bill didn't owe me anything. We were just buds. But his family, his kids, his the guy he owned the business with somebody else, he, he tanked the business. You know, there was so much that had to be forgiven. He had to go to the courts and he had to have, you know, this list of crimes shortened into this list of crimes, which happened. There was so much that happened that really illustrated that God still is in the business of doing this. So, here's the challenge. Um, I've given you a very lengthy, like 40-minute paraphrase of this one very short passage but it's one that means a lot to me. I was so excited to see it again as we go through this 40 words or 40 days in the Word. Not because I said, oh man, this is who I'm going to be, but because somebody said, this is who you are. And so I got to be that paraphrase in that one time. I wish I could just give you story after story after story after story. I can't. You know, I don't think that that's really for us, to be honest. I hope the next time I hear one of those stories, I can hear it from the Lord face to face. And he says, you know, you did well. And this is where you were involved in my work. And this really worked out well. And I brought restoration through this particular circumstance. And I say, man, I had no idea. I want to be that guy that is in Matthew 25, 
where he said, Lord, when did we see you sick or in prison or naked or hungry? And well, I don't remember doing that. And the Lord says, hey, I saw it. Come on in. Enjoy the, the joy of your rest. That's where it will be. I want to challenge you where you're at, wherever you're at in, in your spiritual arc, to understand that these things that are written in the God's word are not for church. They're for your everyday life. And if you learn the principles that are contained in the teachings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if you hear their interpretation as given through James and Paul, the writer of the Hebrews, John, and whoever else added in, and you take those things to heart, then God will begin to do things in you that's amazing. And then you'll sometimes get to see them, and sometimes other people will be amazed because of you, just being obedient to Christ. We always want to make something else out there. Rick Warren talked this, this morning, and our group's like right going, going through, so some of you won't see this for another couple of days or whatever till your till group's done. He just talked about how important that application part is. And that that's really where the joy comes in Scripture. I just want to echo that. The joy in Scripture is not knowing it, not understanding the stories. The joy of being a Christian is not serving in church and being a good person. The joy really is found in being part of what God is doing in this world and then getting those glimpses of being able to say, hey, I'm part of this. And this story, this restoration story, is here at the end of this letter, is a recognition that his family ran people that are going to get lost. And that those that see them get lost and make the effort to go and to say, hey, come, actually are part of God's restorative power. And that there's all sorts of damage that gets undone even saving somebody from the inevitable consequence of sin which according to the scripture is always death i would encourage you to be part of that there may be somebody here who's never taken that first step of being a follower of jesus christ i was so encouraged to hear most of you you know repeat aloud hey this is what we're supposed to be doing well, maybe you're not distracted because you never started following. I just want to extend this invitation to you right now to surrender the authority of your life to Jesus, to receive the forgiveness of what's called sin, which is your choice to do as you what you want to do, which is like the American mantra, I'll do what I want to do, rather than doing what God has said that we must do, receiving forgiveness for that and allowing him to come to change you from the inside out to give you the promise of abundant life now and eternity forever and ever and ever. One of my coworkers, um, it was a really weird thing and just thought of it um, at, at the time, but I'm going to share it with you just in closing. Um, he has wandered away from the truth, and so I've been trying to, to encourage him back. Well, his dad is dying, and he recently left his post where he's, where he's at. It's at one of our further places out. Uh, to come to his dad's house. And I, I said, okay, you know, is your dad a believer? Is he a follower of Jesus? And he's like, uh, well, um, I said, dude, I mean, I knew you're going all those miles to spend time with him. You know, you really need to have that conversation with him. And he's like, well, you know, 
I, I, I don't know. It's like, and he knows that I know that he's not following Christ. But I know that if Jesus got hold of him, that he is his dad's best hope. Because his dad's going to die and he's going to die soon. And so you see how practical these things become? I mean, this isn't like just, you know, here's a guy who wandered away from the faith for a long time, but knows the power of salvation, who knows the gift of God in Christ Jesus, who will forgive sin. And he's got the opportunity, and I've been praying this weekend, please just stir my buddy's heart, my co-worker's heart. We've got to be friends. Stir him to share that which he is not even doing. Because that's just how big God's love is. And so if you think about it today, I ask that you pray that prayer with me. Today's his last day with his dad. and Who knows, it might be the last time he sees him. Um, and ability to have a conversation, I don't know. God does. So join with him. If you're here today and you've never received that, I want you right where you sit to receive that from the Lord. To give the authority of your life to him. And allow him to rescue you and save you from death. Both temporal and eternal. Because those of us who are in Christ Jesus walk right through that door when our bodies are done. And understand the absolute fulfillment of the promise of life forever and ever. We have a time to respond. I'm going to invite those who are going to lead us to do that to come. And I'm going to just... I'm going to ask that you allow God to stir your heart, however it is that he wants to stir. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, I'll be here, and I'll pray with you. Uh, if you want to just come pray yourself, these steps are really cool. You can do that. You can turn right around where you're sitting. Just spend some knee time before the Lord. But know this. As God's people, he's designed us to love each other the way that he loves us. We will be restored. We'll be healed when we repent and Jesus has got a lot of really cool stuff he wants us to be involved in if we will but choose to be obedient Father I thank you for what you're going to do over the next few moments I ask that it would be honoring to you Lord that you'd stir the hearts of those that don't belong to you to receive your love and forgiveness and Lord for those that have endured many things and can match my story for story one right after the other God, I ask that you'd encourage them in your heart that your love would be poured out upon them so that it would overflow, that in this place, in this day, and in the days and the weeks to come, that we would see just the immensity of the love that you have for us because we're loving each other in that way. I pray this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we have a time to respond?